Welcome to season two of My Favourite Item, unravelling Brisbane's history piece by piece. Brought to you by Brisbane's Living Heritage Network, a membership-based organisation promoting more than 80 heritage places and museums dedicated to sharing Brisbane's story. In each episode, join me as we step inside a different Brisbane-based cultural heritage collection to learn more about this city's rich and unique history. If you're a first-time listener, you may want to start back at season one, but each episode tells its own special story. we're going to discover more about an item within the collection of Magunya House Museum, a space owned and run by the Queensland Women's Historical Association. I'll be speaking with Dr Michael Morendi, a highly talented and respected designer, educator, textile conservator and curator who holds an honorary role with the museum. Welcome to the program, Michael. Oh, thank you. Michael, presently you are undertaking work for the museum to conserve and repair a number of items within its extensive textile collection, which is a project that is the result of a grant provided by the Brisbane City Council. What do you love about working with textiles and this type of work? Well, the conservation process can be very challenging as it's, it's just not a matter of actually repairing a hole in a garment. I really enjoy the research that needs to be done prior to the conservation process. For example, we need to know the composition of the fabrics. If we're going to treat them, maybe we need to wet clean them or dry clean them. So we've got to make sure that the chemicals we use don't actually affect the dyes or, or destroy the fabrics in the process. The cut and construction of period garments absolutely fascinates me because sometimes we've got to actually rebuild a whole garment or if we can't conserve the garment, then we reproduce them for display purposes. Most museums have some information on the provenance of the object, but I always like to know a little bit more. So in my spare time, I'll, I'll undertake further research um, using Trove or going to the John Oxley Library. And then what you do with this information is share it with the public because you incorporate it into a catalogue or it may be used in the didactics near the objects. Sometimes the conservation of an object may, may not be quite straightforward and new methodologies may need to be investigated and I find this extremely challenging. So you mentioned before that you have to understand the composition of the fabric. I'm kind of sitting here imagining you with you know, scientific glasses, you know, with lots of vials. Like, how do you go about doing that? Well, we, you know, my background is in textile science. And so it's, it's actually quite simple. You go to a seam and you try and take off a small piece of yarn. And the easiest test to do is just a burning test. And you can tell by the smell it gives off, how quickly it burns, the colour of the smoke. If that doesn't tell you enough information, then you prepare a microscopic slide and you look at it under the microscope. And then you can also do solubility tests as well, where you use certain chemicals because certain fibres will dissolve in certain chemicals. So usually by, by the time you get to the solubility test, you've confirmed the actual composition. You love that kind of 
research journey and that discovery yeah, it's journey. Like, it's like forensic work. It's like being a forensic scientist. But, you know, with years of experience, you can recognise fabrics quite easily. Well, I can anyway yeah. now. And I know with this black dress, as soon as I saw it, I knew it was silk. Because silk degrades in a certain way, it cracks, it shreds. If it's a weighted silk, which was the process they used in the late 19th, early 20th century, the fabrics actually shred vertically. And when you touch them, they powder. So, you know, you just pick all this up as, as you go along in your profession. I know that whenever I walk into a museum space, I'm always drawn to its fashion and textile collection. So I'm rather excited about the item that we're actually sitting and looking at today. What are we looking at here? And because obviously our listeners are listening to us and they're not in the space with us, can you really describe for them what they're looking at or well, what we are looking at? It's totally black, of course. It's a black silk satin two-piece dress probably from the 1890s because again with experience when i look at garments you you can basically give them a, a, a date it may not be the exact date but at least you've got the decade that you can then go off and do some research as i said this is a two-piece dress it's got a very fitted bodice it's made up of multiple pieces and on each of the seams, it's bone because the one thing they didn't want during Victorian times is for the fabric to wrinkle on the body or to ride up on the body. So to stop that from happening, they would bone um, the bodices. It's got a beautiful band collar. And I had to do a little bit of research with the embellishment on it because it's actually embellished with beaded isosceles trapezoids. Now that refers to the shape of the piece that they've used. It's, it's like a triangle with the top cut off it. Mm. And they've stitched those around the, the collar band. And then around those pieces, they've beaded it. And the beads actually sort of hang. It's quite a beautiful sort of trim. They've repeated the trim in the front of the bodice by using commercially produced beaded motifs that you could buy at that stage. The sleeve comprises of two pieces. There's an, uh, an under two-piece fitted sleeve and then on top of that they've constructed a, a what we call a medium-sized puff which starts at the shoulder and ends at the elbow and then from the elbow to the wrist you can see the two-piece sleeve. And of course, at the wrist, they always use beautiful laces, as you can see here. And this one's sort of cut in a circular form, so it's it's actually hanging quite beautifully below the wrist. The, the bodice extends beyond the waistline. It doesn't finish at the waistline. As you move up into the 20th century, you'll find the waistlines move upwards. But we're still in the 1890s, so the waistline has been moved down below the natural waist and extended into a, a type of pleated peplum which goes all the way around to the back and the multitude of pleats are actually concentrated in the back of the bodice. The skirt is a gourd skirt. It consists of four gores, a front, a centre back and then two side gores. And the, the front is embellished again with those commercially produced beaded motifs. The woman who would have worn this would have had to put on the correct undergarments first to get the silhouette. And so she would have woken up and she would have put on a 
chemise or a, a combination or a pair of drawers, her corset, a corset cover, and then a, a, a number of petticoats. And then her maid would have dressed her in this beautiful gown. And she was ready to go off and do what she had to do. And in this case, she would have gone off to a reception. Would this have been made to measure? Yeah. That was quite common in that era? Yes, and we know where it was made because there is a label positioned at the centre back of the bodice. This garment wasn't made in Brisbane or even in Australia. It was brought to Australia with the family from England. And the, the draper, and when I say draper, most drapers during the 19th century had dressmaking and tailoring departments. So this was made by J.B. Archer Drapers in Broad Street, Peterborough. And it would have been made in their dressmaking department, probably by the head dressmaker because it's exquisitely cut and it's beautifully finished inside. Lots and lots of handwork. Now, you spoke about the fact that your expertise allows you to look at pieces and be able to date them. The fact that now we've got a label that you've spoken about before that kind of identifies who actually constructed the dress. Is there any other clues that you used within this dress to really accurately date it to that 1890s period? Well, initially I, I just said 1890s, but during the 1890s, dress changed quite a lot and it basically was the type of sleeve that was used on the dress and also the number of gauze in the skirt. So what is a gauze? A gauze is just a triangular piece. And why they use gauze, and, and that helped me date it, because prior to, say, 1893-94, they also used to use rectangular shapes in the skirts. And what they would do is concentrate that rectangular shape in the centre back and then gather it up but the front and the sides were galled. And what the gauze do is that they eliminate excess fabric around the waist. So you can have a lovely fitted waist without any bulk in the front and then shape out the gore at the bottom to get flaring. And the amount of flaring that they could build into the gauze was all governed by the width of fabrics because fabric width in the 19th century was much, much narrower than fabrics we buy today. Fascinating. Going back to the beading, because I think that personally for me looking at it, it's one of the most stunning mm. features of this yes. dress. Yeah. Is that pattern and is that style very consistent with that era? And is it a particular design that they're following? As I mentioned before, these are commercially produced beaded motifs, but in some dressmaking departments, they had beaders and the beaders would actually design a pattern and then embroider that onto the garment. So each individual bead was sewn on. Whereas in this case, all they had to do was um, hand sew the, the entire motif on much, much quicker. You alluded to the fact that you know that it came from England with a particular family. So I suppose going back to the providence of this dress, what type of woman would have worn this dress? And as you said before, they would have worn it to some you know, reception. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit further? Well, I'll just, I just go back and mention the sleeve. It's a medium-sized puff. And what you find in fashion during the 1890s is that was quite popular during 1893 and 1894. And a little bit at the end of 1896, it was sort of revived 
but wasn't that popular. What happened in 1895 and, and at the beginning of 1896 was the sleeve became enormous. These huge puff sleeves where they had to put buckram inside to keep them upright and, and to keep the shape. They also incorporated leg of, leg of lamb sleeves and they, they're called leg of lamb sleeves because they look like a leg of lamb. They're very large at the top and then very fitted below the elbow. So the dress probably was made in 1893-94, possibly in 1896, but I think more so in 93-94. In now the lady that actually donated the dress to QWHA was Lady Sarah Archer. And she was the wife of Sir Archibald Archer, who was a, a Queensland pastoralist and a politician. He was treasurer for a little while in the Queensland government. Now, the ladies at Maiganya have done some further research to try and find out whether it actually belonged to a member of the Archer family. And, you know, we're only making assumptions. But what we found is that it could have belonged to Lady Sarah's mother, Mildred Crombie. She lived from 1880 to 1869. And her mother-in-law, Alice Archer, she was born in 1862 and died in 1952. So it fits with those two women. The other thing that I found was that Lady Archer's brother-in-law, William Archer, died in 1896. And so if this dress was made in 1893-94 and brought out, she may have wore it as a reception dress. Who knows? So when we're talking reception dress, what does that... The government always holding receptions down at Gardens Point and they were usually afternoon teas. And so you would go there in your carriage late in the afternoon and have afternoon tea with the governor. Ah, so how many reception dress would an average lady of that time own? Quite a few. And whoever owned this particular dress was from a very comfortable family because this dress would have cost a lot of money to make. The more money you had, the more reception dresses you would have. But the beauty of it being black is yeah. the fact that you could wear it to multiple receptions exactly. and events yeah. and would yeah. always look quite stylish. Yeah. If it was originally made as a morning gown, after usually it depends on how close the relative that had died. If it was a husband, you'd probably wear it for six months. If it was not a you know just a, a relative then after three months, you can actually embellish a morning gown with a little bit of colour. And it was usually either cream or purple. So you could add a little feature of those colours onto it, just to say that, you know, I'm now in half mourning or I'm venturing off out of mourning. So there's no photograph? No, there, you know, even though in my research, I looked through photographs, I looked through old pattern making books, I searched all the Queensland newspapers on Trove. There's no mention of the dress being worn in which is, Brisbane. Which is quite interesting because sometimes when you do read those newspaper articles, they are very detailed of, on of what course, the of ladies course. of that time were yeah, wearing. Of course. And I'll just give you an example. In um, 1901, when they held the reception up here for the Duke and Duchess who came out to open federal parliament, over a hundred dresses, and a lot of them were black, were described in the Brisbane Courier. 
So the, the lady journalists back then did describe these dresses in great detail. Obviously, the conservation process, because this dress is over 100 years old, can you explain what you actually did to this dress to bring it back to its glory? Um, it was, it, it, it's been one of the most challenging conservation projects I've worked in my 30 years of a conservator because part of the skirt was actually missing. Probably about a fifth of the upper section of the skirt, right around, it wasn't just in one gore, that the four gores had fabric missing. And, and when I say fabric, the silk satin was missing and the lining was missing. And at some stage, somebody had added a very modern fabric to the top of it, because obviously at some stage they displayed it here in the house. And unfortunately, whoever did that used a sewing machine. Did your heart just stop a little bit? It did because the sewing machine actually did quite a lot of damage to the original fabrics. So after I conditioned, reported it, photographed it in its original state, I very carefully sat down with three lights shining on it because black is very hard to work on. And I very carefully unpicked all the machining and took that rayon addition and the waistband, I took it out. And I then had to work out how on earth do I rebuild this when I don't know the lady's waist size, I don't know her height, but I can um, access the fabrics. So what I did then was more research, especially into the pattern making of 18, the 1890s, because um, there are quite a lot of publications featuring drafting systems from the period and also what they used to refer to as commercial patterns but not as we know them where you get a tissue pattern they would publish the shapes of the bodice the sleeves and the skirts and then put the measurements next to them so you could actually just draft this out because you had all the measurements there and that was very very useful i had no madame wagle patterns from that period because madame wagle was producing patterns in Melbourne and sending them all over Australia. And they were stocked in Brisbane, but very few of them have survived in public collections. So I used the other version of the commercial pattern and I went through and just compared the patterns that were published in 1893, 1894, looked at the bodice shapes, looked at the skirt shapes, and I basically came up with 40 inches as being standard sort of skirt measurement in the 1890s, which eventually was extended to 43 inches in the centre back gore. So you had a tiny little bit of a train. I mean, you can't really call it a train, but it was just slightly longer at the back. And so then I took off patterns from the existing skirt with the bits missing. And then I compared that to the skirt patterns that I drafted and I basically amalgamated them together. And then I cut out completely new cotton lining pieces and then what I call stabilisation pieces because it's very hard to insert full length stabilisation pieces right down to the hemline without unpicking the skirt. And one of the things conservators try not to do is to take garments totally apart because we're losing the integrity of the garment and also the skill of the maker. The first step 
after I did the patterns and cut out all my fabric pieces, I then turned the skirt inside out. And I inserted silk organza stabilization pieces, which were about 22 inches long, in between the silk satin and the cotton lining. The cotton lining had degraded quite a lot and it had split quite a lot, so it needed a little bit of couching. And couching is the, the um, stitch that, he, that conservators use to bring two split pieces of fabric together and the stitch actually holds it together. Couching is a little bit like railway lines. You lay a, a railway track down on the top of the split and then you travel underneath and you hook a little stitch over the railway line and then you go up a little bit further, another little hooking stitch. And so you do that along the entire split and it holds it perfectly flat and stops it from splitting. But what I found though was that as I started to do that, I, I forgot that I was going to catch the silk satin to it as well. So what I had to do was insert archival board to separate the silk satin from the lining and my stabilization piece because I only wanted the silk organza to be attached to the cotton lining. And that worked really well. They were very narrow, um, very thin archival boards with all the corners rounded because I didn't want sharp corners to break the cotton lining. And I very carefully then inserted that silk organza and I now had an entire gore right to the waistline. And I repeated that whole process to the side gores and then the center back gore. But then I wanted to protect the original cotton lining. And because it was so fragile, I then totally covered the cotton lining, the original cotton lining with a polyester tulle. I didn't use silk tulle because silk tulle tends to be a little bit flimsy. It moves a lot. And I've only found polyester tulles in the last couple of years. They're much better than the nylon tulles that we used to use in the 70s and 80s. And so I very carefully stitched the polyester tulle to the existing cotton lining and then attached it to the new silk organza stabilization pieces. So that's adding more strength around the waist area that had all disappeared. I then totally covered that because you can't have a a tulle exposed because it would catch on mannequins when you were dressing. So I then put a brand new cotton sateen lining. But for researchers, I was thinking of researchers and especially me, if I went to a museum and I wanted to see the original fabrics, I left part of the side seam of one of the gauze open and I finished it all off very neatly and put a little cotton tape on the tulle and new cotton lining and a little cotton tape on the original and that way we had a window so a researcher or a curator who wanted to access the original cotton fabric could undo that and lift the lining away and they would have access i then had to stabilize the silk satin that was missing on the front so the whole gown of the whole skirt then had to be turned inside out and I repeated that entire process using silk satin stabilization pieces. And the process was exactly the same. Once that was finished, I then had to sew up the new side seams of all the new fabrics. But 
Prior to finishing it, I also had to make a new placket because zippers were not used in the 1890s. They weren't invented until the 20th century. Most dressmakers used hooks and eyes so and a placket. So a new placket had to be made and then a new waistband had to be put onto the skirt so it could then be put onto a mannequin. And that then concluded the um, stabilisation process of the skirt. So you've spoken a lot about the lower half of the dress. Mm. What was the integrity like and what did you have to do to the top half of it? The bodice required some work as well. Those beautiful embellishments on the collar, all the linings had split there. So I just used the polyester tulle to encase those um, following couching, the original lining. The lining inside had all split as well. So I had to just unpick all the stitches that were holding all the pleats together so I could make it flat. And then I did a, a polyester tulle encasement with that particular lining as well. Somewhere during its history, someone had actually whip stitched the centre back seam together with a very coarse polyester thread because obviously all the original stitching had degraded. That was not a good idea. So I had to very carefully take that out and um, I reinforced the fabric inside with silk ribbons and then very carefully did a back stitch, quite a long back stitch to reassemble the center back seam. And then just did a little bit of couching in, in one of the sleeves and there was some splitting in the upper shoulder areas of the bodice as well. So I couched those splits and then covered them with the polyester tulle. And when we look at it, you really can't tell that there's polyester tulle there. It sort of disappears into the actual uh, garment itself. Is it always that fine balance between trying to retain as much of that original fabric and also stabilise it and keep that longevity? Yes, yeah, always. And as I mentioned before, to keep the integrity, we try not to unpick. You try to introduce the new components under the split. You know, we, we, we use very, very fine medical. A lot of my equipment is medical. So I use medical tweezers where you insert your stabilisation pieces under the splits and then you can do the couching on top. And the, I don't use sewing thread. I actually use silk yarn that's pulled off silk organza. It's extremely fine. It's like hair silk. But hair silk is very, very difficult to obtain in Australia. So silk organza yarn is the next best thing. So how long did that process take you? Um, and has it been one of the longest conservation processes in your kind of professional career? Not the longest, but one of the longest. The skirt itself took 165 hours. And I told the committee that when it comes down, I would like to do a little bit more stabilisation work on it, especially on the frayed areas of the original silk satin. So it really hasn't been finished completely. It's, we got it to a stage where it was strong enough to be displayed. And then what I do to it afterwards really is cosmetic. But I really want to do it because I thoroughly enjoyed working on this garment. It was a joy 
because the methodology that I came up with actually worked. You said before that it was a joy to work on. Is that the reason you've chosen it as your favourite item for today's podcast? Yes. Um, So it allowed me to do more research on the family and on the fashion of that period. But also, it's just beautiful. It is a stunning dress. You know, when you look up close, you see, I didn't even realise some of that beading is in the skirt mm. and it's just gorgeous. So I almost want to kind of take it take it home. Yeah. And, and you know, now that it's on a mannequin, you can sort of visualise the woman. You know, she wasn't a very tall woman, quite petite. And you can imagine her going to a reception, whether it was in Brisbane or in England, and looking amazing and interestingly for me that fashion transfer between london and england and australia is you know very strong you know the fact that it could have easily moved in both of those countries and you know be worn by a woman of her stature in both of those countries is something that also i find really interesting with fashion of that era the the research the fashion research that's been done in the last decade has shown us that Queensland and Brisbane as a city was not the backwater that everybody, you know, especially the southerners made out that we knew nothing about fashion up here. We had probably the leading designer in the country living in Brisbane. She employed a hundred women in her workrooms in Adelaide Street. She went to the warehouses in Sydney and Melbourne all the time with her partner to buy fabrics, to look at what was in fashion. They'd go on little study tours of Sydney and Melbourne and also England. She went to England quite regularly to see what was happening. She opened offices in England. We were importing fabrics from England and also from Asia at that time. When you look at fashion photographs of Queensland women, they were wearing exactly what the Southern women were wearing. And when the Queensland women went to the ceremony for the opening of federal parliament, the lady journalist made a a specific comment about how beautiful the Queensland women looked, how fashionable they were. So we held our own. We held our own. And perhaps this dress was worn, you know, at some fabulous function. Yeah, you just kind of think how many lives and how many things that dress would have seen mm. because it just wouldn't have sat in their closet and worn once. It no, would have, no. You know, gone to multiple events and yeah. been worn multiple times. Did families tend to pass on dresses and so they were worn by the younger generation? Some, sometimes, but a lot of these dresses were kept like we keep things today for sentimental reasons. They, they belong to your grandmother who may have been quite a well-known lady. It may have been a wedding dress that belonged to your grandmother. This may in fact be a morning gown that was worn by this woman. And so it contains the memory of that relative. And forms that, I suppose, history of a family Mm. and that context Mm. and the history and, and, you know, what they would have experienced and seen. Yeah. So do you want to see this dress up close like I am? It, as well as many others, is showcased in the museum's digital exhibition entitled High Society. The exhibition uses the prism of fashion to provide insight into the social lives of the people who lived at Magunya House and Brisbane 
during the 19th and 20th century. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. You can find more about Magunya House Museum, its collection and view high society by visiting its webpage, which is magunya.org. I'll share that address in the episode show notes, or you can find the museum on Facebook. Before I sign off, I'd like to thank you for listening to my favourite item, Unravelling Brisbane's History Piece by Piece, which is produced by Brisbane's Living Heritage Network. Connect with us and our members by visiting the website, which is blhn.org, or show your love for this podcast or this item by leaving a comment, subscribing or sharing it with your friends. Where will we go next and what will we discover? Tune into the next episode to find out. Thank you.